Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Welcome, Internet, to Polycast, episode number 394. I am one of your regular hosts, Mega Bears Fan, joined as usual by Canis Albinus. When driving down the road, do not hit the nearest power pole. You, yeah, that's bad for you, bad for your car, bad for everybody. Also joined by Makalua. And when you are driving down the road and you're going to merge right in front of me, could you use your damn blinker? Thanks. And the me and team may join us earlier or may join us later. Uh, we'll see. Almost didn't get a show this week. Almost. Yeah, we were all uh, kind of uh, barely making it. Well, when I have no power, there's not a lot I can do about it. I yeah, mean, I don't necessarily. I don't necessarily. Uh, I had errands to run. I don't necessarily need internet to do a show, but I definitely do need power. So, thanks to the cell network. But yeah, we kind of sort of need power to do everything now. Well, you do need power to play Civ, and if you're trying to win by score, well, that can be a long drudge. At least, according to SC Brain over here, because started a topic in six external discussion over at Civ Fanatics. They were trying to add to their achievements by winning one game by score. They turned off everything else, they've got the game in hand, they've eliminated everybody else except the Russians, who are apparently down to one little tragic iceball island city. Have all the world's wonders. I've never had such a high score in any game before. They're at turn 404. They've, they've, they've gone through the whole tech tree. They've got all the great people. And they're like, is there, and they still have to get to turn 500. And there's like, is there a better way to do this? Well, somebody's suggestion was, you know, cook the map settings. Like, yeah, I think, I think that's how a lot of people got the deity achievement is like you, one other Civ, the tiniest map ever go ambush them. Yeah, that doesn't really help with the original posters uh, issue, which is trying to get to the end from the game that's already in progress and almost over. Yeah. Turned out seven turns later, the Russian city flipped to him, so he failed. (laughs) Yeah, that's always tripping over a different accidental victory instead of the one you wanted is always kind of a pain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the problem when you own the whole map, basically. There's nowhere that isn't close enough to one of your cities that you're not eventually going to flip. Yeah, and there's not really anything that you can do about that. Like, because you, I mean, I suppose you could try to force yourself into a dark age and reduce your, uh, the loyalty or whatever that's emanating from your cities, but you, you can't stop it entirely. And if you're just completely overwhelming whatever player is left on the map, like, it's, it's just going to happen and it's going to be out of your control. Wait a minute. If he turned off the other victory conditions, how did he win by conquest? Because there weren't any other players left on the map, and that's a default win no matter what. Has it always been that way? Uh, yes. 
I thought yeah. that if you turned off Conquest and Domination in Civ Four, you wouldn't win if there was nobody else left. You had to meet the condition. Oh, well, it's it's always been that way in Civ Six, and I think also in Civ Five. I don't know about earlier games. But, I mean, like, it kind of makes sense, because um, Civilization isn't really a game where you lose to the board ever, or to, you know, lose to the map. So, without any other players to compete against, I mean, it, it is kind of a de facto victory. Like, there's no obstacle between you and winning at this point. Like, unless somehow you're able to lose all of your cities from, like, barbarians or something. But I, I don't even know if barbarians can capture and raise cities in Civ Six, maybe on the highest difficulty setting. Did that happen in Turncast last week? Oh, I thought somebody settled a city on Barbarian Coast and got raised, got their city raised. Grim did, but I don't know. <clears throat> I can't remember off the top of my head if he managed to hold on to it or not. But anyway, uh, that's only going to be a risk early in the game. Like again, at at this person's point in the game, you know, 400 turns in when you control almost the entire world, except maybe for, you know, a few straggling holdout cities, uh, you're not going to lose all those cities to barbarians at that point in the game. Yeah. Uh, you know, even natural disasters aren't going to be wiping your cities off the map. They'll at most like destroy some districts and reduce your population, but they're not going to completely wipe out your civilization. Like at that point in the game, there's nothing you can possibly do to lose. Unless it's apocalypse mode. Yeah, well, yeah. I, but I don't think there's apocalypse mode in a particular game. Anyway, one suggestion from Victoria is just to queue up all of your holy prayers or whatever. And uh, that way it reduces city micromanagement. Uh, but I would actually like to propose that there is probably one other thing that could be done to speed up the game. Which is to just hit shift enter every turn. Like, don't even bother managing your cities or putting anything in production queues or even picking research projects. Just shift enter. You're still going to have to sit and wait for the turn to process, but hopefully if you're not doing anything, it won't take as long. Yeah, if you've uncovered the, uh, covered the entire map, it's just you and the Russians, and there's no... I mean, there's still the city-state units, but you could take over all the city-states. <laughs> the city-states are actually the thing that take up the most in-between turn time. Well, there you go. Streamline your turns. No more city-states. I mean, it's also suggested for future games to turn the... the tur well, that's an awkward sentence. Turn the turn limit down. Because <laughs> it doesn't have to be 500. Or just play on online speed. That would do it, too. Yeah. Yeah, the first response was, if you really, really want that achievement, but don't want to actually play through 400 or 500 turns, uh, just pick Russia, set the turn limit to 1, and uh, settle your first it. city because you get a uh, score for territory you control and Russia just starts their first city with extra territory. So you have more points than everybody else. Easiest cheese. It's a craft macaroni. Yeah, that can get you a few <laughs> achievements, too. Because you'll also get the achievement for winning the game with Russia. And whatever score, whatever uh, limit you're on difficulty. Yeah, Actually, that's not true. Setting. That is not true because the deity AIs start with more units. Oh, there's a little bit of score for the units as well. I think there is. 
And do their cities also start with extra population when they settle them? Because that might yes. also give them more score. Probably so they do. Probably does not work on the highest. I would guess it, it certainly doesn't work on deity. Probably doesn't work on immortal. Maybe on emperor. Eh. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> but if you're just concerned with score, you could do it at settler if you want it. Yeah, again, if you're, if you're just getting the achievement, you're not really probably playing on the highest difficulty setting anyway. Yeah. So yeah, just do it on Settler, get your points, take your achievement, and call it a day. If you play the game the regular way, getting the score you need to win is not a problem. So, But then again, if you're really, really interested in winning by score victory, maybe you should probably play Humankind instead, because the whole game is built around a score victory. You don't have to like cheese it or accidentally win other victory conditions. Yeah, about that. Seems like the worst worst option available, but not the game, uh, the way to end the game. Let's talk about uh, something else. In this case, we will be talking about History Respond... YouTube series about civilization choices that go into specific units that go on. This one is about England. And uh, they start off the discussion talking about a book that was published back in 1992 that was a strategy guide for Civ 1 that was written before the. was written about things that were put in the game after the manual was written. So there was stuff in that book that you couldn't get except through that book as they talked to the people in the game. Interesting read. Lots of interesting stuff. I went and bought the book, by the way. Um, Did you manage to power read through it already? Well, most of it was not something that I needed to read because it was just the game mechanics. And then there was a section about the history of the book itself and then... um, random things you can do with the code like uh, I'm going to replace the in the beginning story dot dot text with hitchhiker's guide opening I think a lot of people modded that in because it was more hilarious that way but yeah the video itself um, had a couple of professors on it I do not remember their names uh, Dr. Allen Allen Port or Allport, talking about England as a colonial power, cultural leaders, and freedom from victory conditions. I'll be honest, I didn't like the video, because I have a very strong vein of anti-intellectualism in my, in my uh, background, so I get a little bit annoyed when a bunch of very smart people spend a lot of time t- proving how smart they are. But that's just a personal bias. Well, I uh, I did enjoy these videos. I've actually listened through all the ones that are released, at least up through a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I, I find it interesting just listening to these historians talk about the, uh, the historical context behind some of these abilities, you know, leaders, where they come from, why these particular abilities might have been chosen. Uh, sometimes also offering their opinions on whether or not they think they were appropriate choices and 
sometimes even suggesting uh, ideas for, you know, gameplay mechanics and stuff like that, although they are always very, very clear about the fact that they are not game designers. So, uh, you know, they're very open about the fact that there's a lot of push and pull that goes into uh, game design that they are not privy to and that, uh, you know, therefore they, they fully recognize even that their own ideas for how the game could be different are possibly not tenable, which is, you know, always a good thing to confess. Uh, it'd be nice if there were more people on the forums that would acknowledge that uh, fact. Um, more people in general that would acknowledge that. Because I know right. in my job, I deal with a lot of people who think they know everything and don't. And mm. it's just like, okay, guys, you've got a degree. That's really nice. But can you keep this cow alive for two years? And most of them can't. And that's the problem. Yeah. Good old Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't care how many degrees you have. If you can't do the job, it's not worth it. Yeah. But anyway, this series uh, over at History Respond has been going on for, I want to say they're up to something like 10 or maybe 12 episodes now. So each one covers a different sieve. They've covered, uh, in addition to England, I think they've had ones about Rome, Norway, Zulu, uh, and a handful of others that uh, I can't... uh, remember off the top of my head i'll check I, for you yeah I, I i've personally enjoyed uh enjoyed all of them and uh i watch a few of their other things too they also do episodes about you know other games as well they've done episodes on things like crusader kings and assassin's creed and uh stuff like that they have a slightly different format for those ones but it's all the same premise which is getting like actual you know history professors you know people with degrees and expertise in history, talking about the historical context of these games, what they get right, what they get wrong, uh, what they get weird. (laughs) Uh, And, um, you know, things that are like interesting, sensitive topics, you know, to be talking about and and how these various games address them or in many, many cases, uh, especially with the Ubisoft games, completely fail to address them. Uh, Like, for instance, at least a couple of these episodes have talked in depth about, you know, the Atlantic slave trade and its complete lack of any representation in the Civilization games. And I think this one about England in particular had an interesting bit where they talk about the kind of contradiction where the, the game doesn't include any mention of slavery except for the one policy of economic policy of triangular trade, which, you know, was the Atlantic slave trade. And it just gets a brief mention that, oh, by the way, slavery existed in the Civilopedia, and, uh, and that's about it. So it's kind of weird to have that policy in the game, but not have any actual implementation of the slave trade that, you know, the triangular trade uh, economic model was, you know, used to propagate. Well, we're all scared to death of potentially showing anybody what actually might have happened at one point so yeah so much fear and so much hey let's throw this guy under the bus because he happened to be married to somebody who related 500 years ago to somebody who traded slaves yeah well civ in particular has always had kind of a a rose tinted you know view of history uh, it's always kind of aired more on the you know optimistic uh, side of things and portraying human history as a, you know, constant forward progression with the, you know, very few setbacks. The four had slavery as a civic though. 
and yeah, surfed all, all the games up to and including Civ Four had models for slavery. I think Civ Five was where they they ditched uh, references to it. But yeah, Civ Four had the ability to adopt a slavery civic, which allowed you to sacrifice population to rush production projects in a city. Uh, and then there'd be like ongoing happiness penalties whenever you did that, which would potentially limit the ability of that city's population to grow back. And might also, if it got bad enough, I think also uh, apply uh, production penalties uh, in the future. So you would you would rush the production to get it out now, but then possibly it, have reduced production in the future. It reduced your population too, so that didn't help. Yeah, right. The civilizations covered in this series are America, Greece, Zulu, China, Scotland, Germany, the Inca, Rome, and now England. Okay, so is that like eight? Uh, nine. Uh, nine. But yeah, interesting stuff. If you uh, if you do play Civ uh, for the uh, for the reason of you know learning about history, uh, it's a pretty good series to check out uh, over on YouTube. History Respawned. Uh, Civs 101. Give it a, give it a listen. I'd say it's definitely worth listening to if you're not me. And you know, maybe try looking up that book as well. Uh, Canis, what was the book called? Sid Meier's Civilization or Rome in 640k. Ooh, 640k, huh? Yeah. It was the 90s. It was the early 90s. Yeah. Today's programmers would be like, I can't even write my name in that few bits what the heck indeed well i don't have a very good segue for that so i guess we'll just uh move on to the next uh topic which is unless uh canis or mackie you had anything else to say about history respond or that uh civ one strategy guide um <clears throat> i would say if you're not interested in playing civ five or civ one don't look for the book because it's not worth the effort to get it uh, it's mostly just a strategy guide, so I believe it is for sale on Amazon. I don't don't know how much it costs though. I paid ten dollars for it. Oh, okay, that's reasonable. Yeah, so it's not like some super rare collectible thing where you know you're paying like a hundred bucks. Well, mine has like coffee stains all over the cover, so oh, it was uh, you had to get like a used from a. They don't sell seller. this book new anymore. Oh yeah, obviously not. Uh, it's a it's actually from the company that produces Prima Strategy Guides back in the in two thousand or nineteen ninety two. I remember those. As far as I know, they still exist. Yeah, but I don't think they're as neat as they used to be back in the nineties. They had a lot more. They, <clears throat> when they would do the strategy guides, they would have a better relationship like with the developers of the games. So there would be background stuff like what's in that Civ guide included. Whereas nowadays, it's just, I can look all this stuff up on the internet. Yeah. Well, and for some more esoteric games, there would be just puzzles where you need a strategy guide just to get the solution. Uh, I'm reminded yeah. of that, that classic example of the uh, Simon's Quest Thing where you have to like kneel down next to a mountain with a certain item in your inventory for like five seconds to trigger a tornado that takes you to the next level. Oh, and there, there's no hint or text or anything in the game that clues you into that is what you need to do. You just needed to have it, that particular issue of Nintendo Power or know somebody who had it in order to know that that's how to 
progress the game. Video gaming in the 80s and early 90s was weird. <laughs> yes, but fun. Yeah, we're still doing it, so clearly we enjoyed it. I was only around for the mid-90s. Didn't make it back that far. Although I played anyway, the Sega the... Genesis a lot, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the play- original PlayStation was like the first console that I got really hardcore into. So that was, yeah, mid to late 90s. But I did have an NAS and a Sega Genesis, so... Sega Genesis is what I grew up on when I was like a, a three... Back in the old days, before we were worried about terrorism and anything crazy like that. Back in the the glory days of the early 90s when communism had been defeated and other stuff hadn't shown up yet. I remember those times. Everything seemed like it was nothing, but then again, I was three. Anyway, that does give me kind of a segue for the next topic, which is uh, uh, speaking of strategy guides uh, over on Civ Fanatics, Casper GM has a strategy for Civ 6, which is apparently just to buy everything with faith. Uh, This user posted a topic titled Major Flaws of Civ 6 Part 3 Faith Economy and Production Costs. Uh, in which they complain about uh, the fact that faith is a far too easy yield to get large uh, sums of early in the game, and that you can basically use it to circumvent all of the checks and balances and bottlenecks that were put in the game specifically to limit you know, growth and uh, science progression and stuff like that. So, for example, you can... Uh, avoid having to spend production on settlers and builders by taking the monumentality uh, golden age bonus. If you're able to get an early golden age, uh, you can eventually use it to buy districts. You can buy military units. You can buy uh, city center buildings. Uh, and then of course, you know, buying religious units and worship buildings and stuff like that. And uh, one of the things that Casper uh, did, I think, forget to mention is uh, that faith is also like almost critical for the uh, culture victory in Civ Six because you can use it to purchase, depending on what uh, religious beliefs you have, use it to purchase theater square districts. But then it's also the, I think, only currency that you can use to build national parks and rock bands and uh, uh, some other... Uh, tourism things as well as you know the ability to get uh relics earlier in the game which provide faith and tourism so like faith is the primary currency almost for two victory conditions since it's not the actual culture that wins you a culture victory it's the tourism and a large chunk of that tourism is generated from faith there's a channel I watch, Many a True Nerd, that does he does a variety of things, but he live streamed a game of Civ over multiple sessions where he took uh, Mansa Musa and took Moksha and he basically did a no production run and he went pretty deep into the game with that. So that it should tell you how overpowered that is. Zero production. Like he was setting something to build and just deleting it every time it got finished, you know, because you can't not generate hammers from a city. But that's what he did. He bought the districts with faith. He bought everything else with gold. 
And it just, it's, you, and I think, I think I've seen something similar with Faith buying and spiffing Brit where he did something insane where stuff cost like almost nothing, even in Faith or gold terms. I think it was also with Matsumisa. Yes, it so, was. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So you could, yeah, especially with Matsumisa combined, you can just do absolutely ludicrous things to the game. And even if you don't use Matsumisa and you still use the Faith buying, like I think all the time in the multiplayer game, everybody loves to go for the monumentality in the golden age and just buy off all the settlers, builders, whatever, especially if you start, especially it's really powerful. If you've got uh, Magnus sitting there in a city and he's got the, you don't lose population with the settlers and you, you could spam settlers like mad. It is, it is slightly too powerful. And if uh, if it's too much of a pain to queue up things in your cities and then delete them when you're able to faith by them, you could probably also just run holy site prayers in all of your cities because I think that's also going to give you additional faith uh, when it's completed. So there's just more currency to buy things. Yeah, but you need holy sites to do that. So it still requires yeah, so you might not be able to do it in all of your cities. But if you're if you're going for this kind of like faith economy, you probably will have holy sites in most, if not all of your cities. Yeah, probably. So you can buy districts, you can buy builders, traders, and settlers. So does it have to be the golden age with monumentality? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the regular dedication bonus is just something like extra era score for building districts or something like that. Okay, that's what I thought. All of the, the standard age um, dedication bonuses are all just things that give you extra era score towards the next age. Yeah. Uh, and I, I actually forget now, does creating settlers in Civ Six reduce the city's population? Normally, still? yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is still a minor bottleneck, is even if you're purchasing your settlers through faith, it's still going to take away population but you can still bypass that with uh magnus uh, yeah with one of magnus's promotions and it's like it's it's very early yeah it's like the second it's on that i think the the second tier which is one of the first first two that you can take is the one that uh ignores the population loss yeah it's no it's literally the first thing you could take i think because it's black marketeer that's i think second tier Right. Because I use them a lot in multiplayer. I don't want to have to worry about this. My Because, of course, your capital is usually where you're putting out settlers. Really. Put him here, get that thing, just start spamming settlers. I still have to build them unless I get lucky and get monumentality. But Yeah, I think the, the first two choices, one of them is like bonus food from trade routes. And then the other one yeah. is no population loss for settlers. Yeah, so there you go. You just need the initial promotion and the second promotion. and Boom, you're done. And you're, you know, you're going to have access to that by the classical age when you uh, are going to be potentially getting the monumentality dedication bonus. So, yeah, like you just buy a, buy them all in that one city and, uh, you know, send them out far and wide and you'll never have to lose population, won't have to spend a point of production. Always get Valetta because then you can build blood barriers with faith. Yeah, well, and it's also just... Uh, is Valletta also the one that lets you build city walls with faith? Yeah, city center buildings. Yeah, yeah. city center buildings and walls. So you get your, you, you have Valletta, you're getting your granaries, your uh, water mills, and your monuments, uh, and city walls, you know, for defense, all with faith, which is a really, really strong ability. If you have faith, 
try to become suzerain of Valletta. If you don't have faith, destroy right. Valletta. <laughs> no, if you don't have faith, try to become suzerain of Valletta anyway. To keep the other the AI or other players from doing this. Well, which is why I said to just destroy them, because then the other players can't get that bonus. Anyway. I think it lets you buy them with gold, too. Does it? I was thinking it was only faith, but I could be wrong. Let me hard. check. Civ 6 Wea Valletta. Militaristic city-state. Nope, only faith. Right, because you can buy city center buildings with gold already anyway, so that, I don't know why that would be a bonus. I don't, I don't think, think you can do that, actually. No, because otherwise we'd be buying city walls all the time when we have bar problems. Well, city, uh, city center buildings you can. Walls you can't. Um, well, monument and granary and things like that, yes. Yes, it's walls that are right. exempted. And I, I don't remember if the flood barriers can be purchased with gold by default. I don't want think to so. say no, but... Cannot be purchased with gold. And then one of the other things that uh, Casper GM brings up is the fact that uh, as you progress through the game, Faith provides like different benefits, which means that they're not even in competition with one another. So if you have high outputs of Faith yields, you can pump all of it into like these very specific things that uh, Casper GM thinks completely break the game's economy. Well, they kind of do, but that's okay. Because the economy is already broken. Yeah, I think the the rest of this thread is basically arguments about whether or not faith is actually broken or if it's just, you know, good play now to have lots of faith. I remember the- I remember when the game first came out, faith was generally regarded as completely useless. Right, yeah, and then that was brought up in this thread as well, which is that that Casper GM feels that uh, Firaxis overcompensated uh, or overreacted to players complaining that faith and religiously focused civilizations uh, didn't do enough and were too weak. But uh, they're certainly not weak now, except for, you know, the ones that just don't have very good religious abilities. Like, yeah, uh, Arabia. <laughs> Arabia. Yeah, especially when the uh, CPU is playing as them and they just like basically ignore the fact that they have their special ability and build holy sites at the beginning of the game anyway. Well, you should do that, I think. Yeah, you, well, you, you need to build them a little bit in advance just so that you do your accumulating faith before you get that last profit. But, you know, what the AI will do is is they, they do it right from the start of the game and then they just naturally generate one of the first profits anyway when they could have been spending that production on other early districts like uh, campuses or whatever and, and getting other getting ahead in other demographics. See, I'm not going to fault them for that because that's actually good play because you don't want to be the last religion founded. True, yeah. I mean, it, it depends on what um, what beliefs and stuff you're you're going for. All but the yeah, good I, ones I are usually gone. Bad play. It's just, it's, it's a weird ability because like... Oh no, using... it's, a, it's a bad ability, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, it for a religious-oriented Civ, it's good to have an ability that guarantees that you will have a religion. Yes, it's. I think the the problem is that that's just that's the main part of the ability, and it probably should just be kind of like a secondary bonus thing. I know I've had plenty of games where I've played as a religious Civ and wished I had Arabia's ability, especially on higher difficulties. Yeah, and it could be that the AI for the religious Civs 
just can't take account for the fact that they're going to get that last one and reprioritize. Like, yeah, like, they, they just don't know. They just have high yeah. flavor for religious stuff, so they're just building the religious stuff. And that's, uh, that's just kind of a limitation of the Civ AI and kind of always has been that they, they don't, the AI doesn't really understand the game rules or the civilization abilities. They just have certain flavors that prioritize what they, they build and what they do. And I don't think there's any way, I, I don't think Fraxis has ever implemented a way where those flavors like change or pivot mid game. So it's not even the case where they could set up a Civ like Arabia to have like a science flavor and then, you know, in the classical or medieval era, switch them to a faith flavor. I don't even know if that's possible with the current system. Hmm. But that would be, it would, it would be good for the AI because then it could go science the first couple of eras and then switch over to faith once they have potentially have a profit. Right. Let's see. Anything else interesting in this thread? I think we covered it pretty well. Any now strong opinions one way or the other regarding faith from any of us? I like it. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence. Like, I see Casper GM's points, but I don't really think that it's game-breaking. Yeah, I'm not sure how broken it actually is if, say, you took monumentality out. Well, and, like, e even looking at, at Casper GM's post, like, you have to lay all of the groundwork to be able to do all of these things, especially if you want to take advantage of all of these things in one playthrough, right? Like you, you got to have the right city states in the game. You got to pick the right religious beliefs. You got to have the right social policies in play. You know, map conditions are going to come into play. Like if you just don't have any mountains around mm -hmm. you, your, your holy sites just are not going to generate that much faith yield pretty much no matter what you do, at least not early in the game. So I mean, it's it's just a, it's a part of strategy. It's playing to the the benefits of the map and the strengths of your civilization during the game. Like it's not like just having a faith civilization or building a couple of holy sites early in the game is just going to give you all these things, and the rest of the game is just going to be snowball cakewalk. You, you still got to put the legwork in. Yeah, even on that uh, live stream game that I watched, where the the guy was <clears throat> did the no production run. First off, he had to pick Mansi Musa to make the most of it. And he had to hope he found Valletta like in the first 30 or so turns and stay suzerain of it the, as much as he could. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to run. You know, so you still have to cook settings and things sort of, you know, you, you have to bias it to make it really snowball. Yeah, I have to imagine that for every one of these like spiffing Brit or potato McWhiskey like exploit videos uh, that they do, they probably have to like, re-roll a hundred games <laughs> to get the, the map conditions and circumstances that they need in order to actually pull off these so-called exploits. The one that Spiffing Brit did had randomized terrain yield. Like, every time you reloaded the game, the yields changed on the tiles. You mean, like, a grassland would, like, generate different yields besides just two food? It would generate... Like, I think when he started, uh, Desert produced two science. Is that a mod or is that a setting in the It's a mod. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a thing too. Is I've noticed that some of these exploit videos now are, are using outright mods. And I'm like, well, that's not really an exploit then now, is it? Well, I think it depends on what the mod is. If it's a UI mod, I don't think it's a, a big deal. But if it's a... Yeah, a, but it also makes them not have to run or set up 50 different games to get the kind of conditions they need to show you 
how you could potentially, even in the base game, do some of this stuff. Let's bring back a segment we haven't seen in a long time. I need to get out my lab coat and safety goggles? Yes. We all do. Yeah, so research lab type of thing here. Uh, Designing America vs. 7. I mean, we know it's eventually coming. But uh, thread started by Lone Cat Neko Aphrodite. Somebody really likes cats. So... You know, just the basic discussion. What's the underlying theme? You know, are we going to have another, are we going to have another late 18th century one? Are we, are we, are we going to go into 19th century? Are we going to have a 20th century leader? And who should that be? You know, should, who are, who are going to be the alter egos? Like, you know, we have Bull Moose Teddy and the regular Teddy. And, you know, what's the unique unit? And what, you know, what are we, uh, what would we get for infrastructure? We've had, sir. We had malls one time, and I'm like, I don't know that that's really American-American, but okay. The oh, concept, I don't know. I think of shopping malls as being pretty quintessential American. <laughs> the concept uh-huh. of the shopping mall is American, but it's not as uh, foreign. It's not as uh, American-centric as other people would say it is, because it's basically just a single building that encompasses all the different little stores that a old-fashioned downtown would. So it's not, or even just a market square. Yeah, it's not that or whatever. It's not that different. Bizarre. Not that different from what other countries have, but we put them all in a single building. So, and it's just a a more corporatized version of a swap meet. Pretty much. Um, There's a lot of talk about giving America some industrial revolution related techniques or things, um, which I agree would probably be a good pace considering what we did during the the revolution but at the same time we also were very agrarian at the very beginning and if there's some sort of an immigration mechanic that would be a shoe-in for an american thing that's actually something that i've uh always been an advocate for is is yeah some kind of like immigration thing either getting population from other civilizations or you can also do it through like a, a great person thing where, you know, America gets more great people to, to represent the idea of, you know, immigrants coming uh, to this country and, and then, you know, becoming inventors and scientists and stuff like that. We need Sam Houston as an alternate leader. I'm personally hoping that Civ 7 really, like, doubles down on the whole multiple leaders for civilizations thing. And, and like, every civilization or almost every civilization has multiple leaders. So that, you know, there's a little bit more options and a little bit more variety. And we can get a little bit more of these different things, you know, represented. I would be fine. I was really hoping we were going to have more, but we only had a handful for certain civs. It's like, come on. And vanilla Civ 6, it was like, like, Greece was, I think, the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was very disappointed with that it was just that one sieve that had it. Although at th- at this point we have quite a few. Uh, it's nowhere close to being all the civilizations, not even half. But there's uh, there's quite a few that have multiple leaders now. Well, yes, but those multiple leaders are shared between more than one civilization. There's yeah. Really- well, that's one easy way of, of doing it that uh, reduces the amount of work Fraxis has to do. Well, easy kind of, but not really because it just means you have to. 
you have to alter the entire civilization and make a copy of it because the game is not well designed for that kind of modularity, despite the fact that it had it, which I think is the reason why they didn't do very much of it. Well, Civ 6, definitely not. But like now that these ideas have been, you know, proven and players like them, I'm I'm sure Civ 7 will probably be designed from at a more fundamental level with these, you know, support for these ideas uh, in place. Well, remember, Civ 4 had it really easy to switch leader, but... Right, they, but part of that was because they only had those handful of abilities, and each leader was just a you know unique combination of two abilities, yeah. as opposed to each one having a unique ability. And they didn't have to fully render an entire scene for each one. Yeah, true. But but yeah, but Civ Four was a good example of a game where I, almost every civilization in the game, I think, had at least two leaders. Some of them had three, or I think there might even been a couple that had four. I do think that for the uh, unique unit, the Minuteman is a good unit because it makes it makes it so that you can have a unit that isn't so late that it d- doesn't matter anymore. Um, there are plenty of building opportunities too, and we've got yeah. forty forty four decent precedents we could use. Well, depending on the the flavor or theme, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a president. You could, you know, be talking about a colonial leader, you know, like a John Smith type character, or as uh, Canis, you suggested, uh, Sam Houston. Sam Houston was a joke because he's the leader of Texas, but right, true. But I'm saying in that kind of you know spirit, like that's entirely possible or doable. Speaking of leaders again, I would be fine with the Civ Two method of doing it. But that would be kind of hard to do for some Civ. Which was what? To have one male and one female leader for each yeah. Civ? Yeah. Bring back yeah. a good old Eleanor Roosevelt? Anybody but her, please. I'd rather have Hillary than her. I'm not yeah, really well, a big I, Hillary I, fan, but she's probably a better leader than... I, I don't think Firaxis is too keen on using living people as uh, yeah. leaders. Yeah. That's probably why the only great people from like the information era are like people from the 70s and 80s that are dead now. Well, there's, I think, several reasons for that. Uh, one of them for musicians in particular is licensing the, you know, 10 or five seconds of uh, yeah. music that they would need to put into the game. But then also, like, there's a whole bunch of legal things with you probably have to get permission from the the person or from their estate uh, in order to use their their name or likeness or things like that. So it's it's a lot more, you know, complicated than just a thinking of someone and putting them in the game. Yeah, the permit like you could have Jimi Hendrix is a great person, but the permission is required just to use his name. And I don't think they would make it necessarily individual different likeness but and then the five seconds of like purple haze or something yeah yeah let alone the cost of licensing that music or especially if you wanted to put in someone like the beatles or michael jackson oh good god a they're historically notoriously like difficult to license to begin with and b it's going to be really expensive for x does not have that kind of money (laughs) yeah there goes all the game profits yeah, I mean, it's it, there, there's nothing technically stopping them from doing it. It's it's just mostly a, and it's not even just even the money. It's probably just the time and effort that it would take to go to all these people and their estates just to get the permission. Yeah, that's that's 
That is a lot of people. And and we already know that there's, you know, people will say no. Like we actually have the story from Civ Five where Fraxis wanted to use uh what was it, the uh uh Pueblo uh Indians or or Navajo or someone like that, and they actually went to the tribal council and they said no, they didn't want to be included in the game. So Fraxis had to scrap their ideas and I think they ended up going with the Shoshone instead. That was the uh I forget what they were called, but it was the leader Pope. Yeah, like there was some dispute about the depiction of the civilization or leader in the game, and the the tribal council said, "No, we don't want to be included in this way." So I think they had someone else. The fact that Civ is warlike. Well, that was a different one. That was with that the Cree, where they well, they had an issue after the the expansion came out, and they were in the game, and they it, actually played it. It wasn't actually the leadership of that tribe, though. That was one guy who thought yeah. that it was bad. I think it was it was one person like from the leadership of the tribe, but it wasn't like the the leadership as a whole. Like it wasn't the official position of the tribe. It was like one dissenting opinion. And the Cree are still in the game, so like you know clearly that uh, didn't go anywhere. They didn't have to like pull them out or anything. Yeah, which that would be awkward too. Like that's a, a weird thing too. Is the idea of them possibly having to pull content out of the game? Uh, for legal reasons or licensing reasons. Like I remember, um, you know, going back to the topic of, of music, uh, the rock band games. I don't know if, if, if you all played rock band, but I was super big into it and had a bunch of friends who were super big into it back in its heyday. And there were issues where there were uh, songs in like the first game uh, where you could not import them into the second game because they were only licensed for the first game for some reason. Uh, and they were, you know, some of them were good popular songs that, you know, we all liked playing. So you have issues like that, too, where uh, not only do you have to get the license, but it's like, how long does that license work? And does that license include potential expansion and DLC content? Or would they eventually have to pull stuff out of the game because the, the rights expired or whatever or are revoked? Like you'd have it grandfathered in if you had bought it at a certain point in time, but if their rights expired, say, after five years, then anybody buying the game new five years later isn't going to get that stuff. Which well, I would imagine that with the way game, game development works now, games. it would just be cut from the game via post-release you know, patch for everybody, but who, I don't know. Who knows? And there's anyway, some talk we, about we, giving America some religious characteristics because of its... Uh, its um, early founding and the way that mm-hmm. it, religion was emphasized as a we are lots of religions and we will not let any one of them be better than the others type thing. You have a like a Puritan as a like a unique uh, uh, apostle or a missionary unit. Well, I would think more along the lines of we accept all religions here. So if it's like if religions are the way they are were in Civ 5 and 6, maybe America would be unique and that it would get all the bonuses from all present religions. Something similar to, I think, India's current ability in Civ 6. Is that their ability? Because I think that's what it is. It makes sense because America is kind of built on the idea that you can be whatever you want so long as you don't mess with everybody else. Or try to put yourself legislatively in charge. Well, There, of course, is where we start running into the problems. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it was intended to be. That's not how it ended up. But yeah, there, there's definitely the ideal of religious acceptance and tolerance uh, in actual practice in this country. It's not so much the case 
and uh, pretty much any religious minority member of a religious minority will probably tell you that and have stories. But yeah, that would be a, I, I wouldn't mind that something like that as an ability, uh, you know, or like a, a melting pot ability where it's not just maybe religions, but just cultures in general. If there's a unique culture thing like there was in Civ 4. Yeah, yeah. Or what we have now with the loyalty pressure isn't as strong against America because of the melting pot. Right, yeah, things like that. But I definitely agree. I I do like the idea of having an ability that's focused around, you know, immigration, you know, the the concept of the land of opportunity and and melting pot and things like that. Just from like a, a... you know, going back to that idea we talked about earlier of Civ being a very like optimistic kind of rose tinted uh, vision of history. Like I, those are, are, I think the most admirable ideals of this country. And, and I would definitely very much approve of seeing them represented in the game. As for unique units, like I'm, I'm okay. Cause I, I, I like the idea of there being unique variants for like every kind of base unit in the game somewhere. So I, I definitely think there should be room for unique tanks and unique airplanes and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, America is one of the prime candidates for that sort of thing. So I'm not necessarily sure if I agree with them having a unique unit that's um, more, you know, universal throughout the whole game. But then again, as I said before, I'm, you know, definitely a, a proponent of having multiple leaders. So I don't see any reason why Civ 7 also couldn't be built more around the idea of every Civ having more unique units and buildings and stuff like that as well. So maybe you you have, I, I mean, just a, as a kind of extreme example, maybe you get a unique uh, kind of piggybacking off the ideas of humankind again. Maybe they give you a unique unit and a unique infrastructure for each era of the game. Like uh, humankind. Right. Yeah. So you're not necessarily switching cultures or civilizations every era, but you you get new things that you get to play with. That way you don't have the problems where you have a narrow window of opportunity to use these things. Mm. And if that opportunity doesn't come up, you just don't ever get to use your your uniques in this game. Sorry, too bad. Uh, In that case, you you would have an opportunity to use your uh, other uniques in the next era instead. The problem with late game unique units is in order for them to have the same effect as early game unique units, they need to be much stronger than the, their contemporary units because there's less time to use them. So you end up with a situation with, okay, you can have a modern tank unique, but it has to be as strong as a giant death robot to be effective at winning the game compared to, say, a legion. Well, other ways of doing that is also to just expand the window of opportunity for usefulness. So maybe you have late game units, but part of their uniqueness is that they're available a little bit earlier. You know, like say maybe you have a a unique jet fighter and it's available like one tech earlier than where other civs get jet fighters. So America has it earlier in the game where it, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be stronger, but because it's competing with, you know, propeller planes uh, it has a decisive advantage, you know, while you uh, are ahead uh, in technology. A one tech difference would be meaningless, though, because well, it would already yeah. have to be that much stronger to be relevant. Yeah, I mean, that's just an example. I mean, you know, it, it, in actual practice, it would probably need to be a little bit more than that. But it also depends on how the tech tree is laid out and whether or not that's even, like, appropriate or possible. I mean, if... uh. If jet fighters are one tech after 
you know, World War II era propeller fighters, and those are one tech after, you know, biplanes or whatever, then clearly you, you can't do that. Like, yeah, you, you have to have, you would have to have a dense enough tech tree in order for something like that to even be like practical to begin with. Yeah. But America's not the only one. I mean, you know, if you want a unique air unit, you know, there's the, the Japanese Zero. You can always have like a Russian or Chinese MiG as a unique unit. The last time the Zero appeared in Civilization, it was the worst unique unit by far. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on what you, uh, what abilities you give it. It was given abilities that attacked things that the fighters never fought, so it was literally Oops. a useless a unit. My personal preference for a, you know, Zero's unique ability would be some kind of kamikaze-oriented thing, where if the unit is destroyed or shot down, it destroys or damages the unit that, uh, attacked it but you know that's just me seems a little insensitive but then again yeah perhaps but there's you know there's definitely the historic context there well does anybody else have any ideas from the thread or from themselves or should we just move on to the end of the show uh oh just one more thing there is a a post later on down here from uh js civ 69 proposing dwight eisenhower as a uh leader being that he was both a successful military general and also a president uh which i think is a a good idea for a possible leader yeah eisenhower would be a good choice All right, this has been Polycast episode 394? Yep. My memory is failing me. My name is Canis Albanus, and I have been joined with only two of our regulars this week. We have Makalua. Time for more caffeination. And Mega Bears fan. Believe me, I have no shortage of potentially insensitive ideas for civilization unique abilities. <laughs> oh no. Oh, dear. I have to, you know, make sure I uh, watch what I say. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.